Amen. Thank you, Brother Allen. We are continuing a study we began last Wednesday evening on the helpfulness of Christ. Uh, now, again, overall studies on the Godhead. So make sure we don't forget why, if we're studying the Godhead, why would we include Christ in that study? He's a part of the Godhead. So would you agree he's pretty important? Yeah. He's the one who died for our sins. Now, again, basic question, just so we don't lose track. How long has Christ existed? Forever. But he came flesh, but he became flesh just over 2,000 years ago. And we know he became flesh ultimately to die for our sin, which he did. But as we studied last week, and we'll find out again tonight, there was another reason he became flesh. Do you know what it was? Say it again. Okay, that's a primary reason, but there's a secondary reason. So he could know what? Absolutely. So he could know and understand how we feel. Now, it doesn't matter. You know, to me, it doesn't matter who's in the White House. But anyway, it doesn't matter whether it's Republican or Democrat. If you or I were were to call, whether it be a Republican or Democrat in the office, hey, you know, my name is so-and-so, I'd like to talk to the president. What are you laughing about, Alan? Yeah, somebody told me that chances were slim to none and slim left town, right? And truly it is. Because the bottom line is they don't really care about us. You know, that's true. I mean, you know it's true and I know it's true. Isn't it great to know we have a Heavenly Father who does? And, and Phyllis, you're right. His primary reason for coming was to save us from our sins. But also so he could experience what we go through and understand how we feel. And so that's why we're spending some time, a second week, on the helpfulness of Christ. Let's go back to chapter 2 of, verse eight, chapter two of Hebrews, verse 18. We read it last week. We'll read it again. Anybody want to do that? Okay, thank you, Helen. We mentioned this last week. Uh, that word, Sakura, there, or Sakura, however you pronounce it, but uh, not a word we use in today's vocabulary. And uh, we have to remember, and we touched on this Sunday morning in Sunday school, uh, one of the reasons whoever wrote the book of Hebrews uh, wrote this letter was to strengthen the faith of these Jewish Christians. They were beginning to waver. Uh, their faith was being tried, and they were, you know, in fact, this it's, it's a timeless book, no doubt about that, because it's for all who are growing weak in grace and in their faith. Because we have to realize, salvation is free. What about the journey? It's difficult. It is difficult. Quite a few years ago, probably one of the first times I studied uh, through the book of Acts to teach it verse by verse, and I'll never forget who the one I was studying after, his notes from it. And, of course, he got them somewhere else, too. But he said that when people get saved, there's three stages. Early on, this is easy. A few years go by, this is difficult. Ten or fifteen years go by, this is impossible. Yeah. And that's true about our walk with God. Now, remember, Jesus paid the price for our salvation. He died for our sins. But walking with Christ 
is not always going to be easy. Now, it's interesting. It got so bad that these Jewish believers were considering very strongly of going back into Judaism. And so the entire book is really to show how much superior Christ is than anything they had before. Now, it's also interesting, um, and I don't know exactly how to bring this out correctly, but, you know, Judaism, uh, you remember from the Old Testament, was a hands-on religion, right? I mean, you're always, you know, out offering sacrifices, doing some kind of festival, whatever. Uh, Christianity, not so. And so it went from a hands-on religion to a hands-off religion for the most part. It doesn't mean we don't serve Christ. We certainly do. But a, a complete turnabout from what they were. And on top of that, they are suffering persecution. Now, also remember... uh Everything, for the most part, in the Old Testament points to who? Points to who? Jesus Christ. All the sacrificial system, the priesthood, uh, even the kings, everything, for the most part, points to Jesus Christ. And the law was only temporary. It was, and by the way, what was wrong with the law? Nothing. It was perfect. The problem was us, but people, we couldn't keep the law. They couldn't, and of course, we can't either. So what the author of Hebrews sets out to do, he wants to uh, sort of bring before these Jewish Christians the transcendent excellency of Jesus Christ and his goodwill toward humanity. This is what Jesus can do for you. Now, uh, I hate to say this early on because you said let's go home, but in the nutshell, he is saying everything you need is in who? It's in Jesus. It is in Jesus. So he takes time and he puts on display the perfection of the person of Christ and who exceeds him? Nobody. None of the priests, none of the prophets. He goes on and presents the perfection of his office, and nobody exceeds his office. He's priest and king. And one thing we learn from the Old Testament, uh, you couldn't be from the same tribe. You couldn't be a priest and king. Now, we know Melchizedek was. That's before the law, uh, during the time of Abraham. And that's why uh, Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And you read about him in Hebrew chapter 6, and then, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 5, and then the writer takes a break in chapter 6, uh, because he's afraid that once they hear about Melchizedek, uh, it's going to get tough on them, and they might just bail the ship then. So he says in chapter 6, be careful. Don't go back, because if you do, there's no return. But nonetheless, pick back up on Melchizedek back in chapter 7. So you couldn't be priest and king. So he goes from this person to his office, and then he talks about his work. Oh, my goodness. I want to tell you, what a Savior we have. What a Savior we have in Jesus Christ. And then he lets us know clearly, and, the, and, and again, not just us, but the original readers of this letter, he declares that Jesus Christ is in fact the Son of God. Now think about that. Clearly does that. And he also says, he reminds them that Jesus Christ is going to be an, the heir of all things. Because once we're saved, 
We become brothers and sisters of Christ. What's that mean? If he's heir of all things, what's that mean for us? Ah, we become the heir of all things through him. He also tells them early on that Christ is the brightness of God's image, uh, of his glory, and the express image of God's person. You remember in John 14, uh, when Philip said, show us the Father, what did Jesus say? Yeah, if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. When Paul wrote to the church of Colossae, he said that Christ is the express image of God. He's the fullness of the Godhead. Back up to verse 17, chapter 2 of Hebrew. We read that last week. Let's read it again. Thank you, Phyllis. Now, again, we mentioned earlier his primary reason, of course, was to save us from our sins. But here in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, it was important that he be made like us, that he become flesh. That way, that's the only way he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in everything that pertained to God. Now, that he might make reconciliation. What's the word reconcile mean? To bring us back to God. See, he had to feel like we feel. He had to know what we experience. So basically what the writer of Hebrews does, he puts Christ on display. We're not going to go into detail. We'll just listen real quick because we went into detail last week. He first of all, in chapter 1, he presents him as a supreme prophet. Now, again, what other prophet did Jesus or did God say, this is my son? None. Okay. He also said he was a glorious king. Hebrews 1, verse 8. He says that Jesus Christ, in verse 17, we read it a moment ago, is a merciful and faithful high priest. Again, in verse 17, he makes reconciliation for us. In verse 25 of Hebrews 7, he's also our intercessor. What in the world is an intercessor? Do what now? Yeah, he's, he's fighting on our behalf. Now, by the way, I'm convinced when Jesus goes to the Father, he gets what he asks for. Don't you agree? The only time I know that God told him no was in the garden. But he was willing to take, he understood that, okay? So he makes, he's in our, our intercession. Also, according to Hebrews 2.10, he's the one that one day is going to bring us to glory. And then the writer of Hebrews uh, lists at least three consequences of the incarnation. First of all, the Lord of glory came down into a realm of temptation. What does that mean? He came to earth. And because he came here, what happened to him? Was he tempted? Yes. Just once or twice? A few areas? No, the Bible is in all points that we are. And he didn't sin. The second thing he did, he, was, he came down from glory to experience temptation. The second thing, he suffered 
while being tempted. Now, I know we have sometimes, if you're like me, I can only speak for myself, I have difficult wrapping my mind around that. Because was he God or was he man? He was both. Paul, was he more God or more man? He was equal. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, and here's what I thought all the, you know, I thought, Lord, you're God. Surely when you were in the wilderness at 48, you didn't get hungry, did you? But guess what? He did. He absolutely did. So he suffered while he was being tempted. And the third result of the, the consequence of the incarnation from Hebrews 2 verse 8, chapter 2 verse 18, he remembers his suffering. He remembers how he felt, what he went through, and now it simply makes him more aware of ours. When we suffer, he knows what we are going through. So here's where we left off last week, and we're going to read the verses again here in a moment. But certainly there are some precious and timeless words. And here's what I want you to realize. These words were not only precious to those first readers. Guess who they're precious to? To us. And they're timeless to us as well. Now remember, these were Jews who had been converted in the days of Christ, in the days of the apostles, if you will. And they were suffering extremely difficult circumstances. How many know when you get saved, Satan doesn't like it? (laughs) You have to know he didn't like it when the Jews got saved. But anyway, and so their fellow Jews who hadn't been saved were giving them, you know, a difficult time. Now, again, there were a lot of Jews who were zealous for the Old Testament. And they considered anyone who turned away from Moses, anyone who turned away from the law, they, they considered him apostate from the law. And in their mind, if you're an apostate from the law, you're an apostate from God. You have fallen away from God. Now, you probably don't remember the name, the Apostle Paul. You remember him? Now, it's interesting. Before Paul was converted, he persecuted you. I'm sorry, not you. He persecuted Christians. Why did he do that? Yeah, he thought they were apostates. And he really was convinced he was doing the will of God. And for the most part, that's just about how all Orthodox unconverted Jews felt during that day. And so these Hebrew Christians were feeling, uh, uh, feeling the heat from that kind of persecution. A lot of them were uh, ostracized by their families. Uh, they lost fellowship with the other Jews. Uh, not only did they... Uh, treat him with very difficult, uh, deep contempt. Uh, they treated him very harshly. So let's go to chapter 10 of Hebrews. We read it last week, verses 32 through 34. Why 
All right, thank you, Phyllis. Now, let me give you a little background. We talked about it in Sunday school a little bit on Sunday morning. Uh, most scholars believe that uh, this letter was probably written around AD 60 to 64. Uh, one thing that scholars concluded, it, ha- it must have been before AD 70. Because in AD 70, the temple was destroyed, and for the most part, uh, sacrificial worship stopped. Okay, there was no more place to do that, and it ended. So the writer of Hebrews still speaks about uh, temple worship. And uh, in fact, later on in chapter 13, uh, he says, We have an altar as Christians where they, the Jews, have no right to partake of. So he's comparing something they would understand. So evidently the temple was still standing, so written, uh, you know, at least before A.D. 70, probably in the mid-60s. Now, it's interesting, uh, don't know how, you know, so it could have been, and probably some of these Jewish Christians have been saved for about 30 years, uh, give or take, because they, they were certainly saved after, either during the ministry of Christ or shortly thereafter through the preaching of the apostles. And uh, so the author, who, and again, we don't know for who it is, uh, again, one of the things you'll see here, he mentions they had compassion on him in his bonds, uh, some would take that to mean Paul. Uh, could be, you know, we're not for sure about that. Uh, many believe that Paul was dead by the time the letter was written, but it doesn't matter. God spoke. But so for some time, they had experienced persecution. And evidently it began right after they converted to Christianity. So my question is, by the time this letter is written, 20, 30 years later, whatever it was, had it gotten any better? No. They're still considering, I mean, facing persecution. It's got to the point now they're thinking about, or some of them at least are, let's go back to Judaism. So to encourage them, in verse uh, uh, 32, he says, think about your former days. Think about the time shortly after you were first illuminated. What does that mean? Yeah. When you were saved. When the light shone in your life. Think about that. Think about what was going on then. You were a gazing stock. (laughs) You know, reproaches and afflictions. (laughs) And wow, the the afflictions that you experienced. And whoever writes this letter says, remember those days. Because in those days, as bad as it was, you remained faithful, even though it meant horrible suffering. Now, let's pause here for just a moment, okay? And we don't, we don't have a definite answer for this, but, but probably in most cases... When would you, when would we think that most Christians are most gullible? Yeah, when you're first saved. Because one of the first things Satan's going to do is what? Try to convince you you never got saved. You don't have the goods. He might say something that God really say. That's an old one he uses, isn't it? <coughs> so that, that certainly would be one time. Probably most gullible. But the writer said, look back. Even in the early days, you were willing to suffer these hardships. 
And notice also there in verse 34, he said, you took joyfully the spoiling of your goods. What does that mean? What were they doing to them? They were taking their valuables. Some of them lost their homes or their property. And the writer says, <laughs> you joyfully accepted when they came and took away your property. And you maintained a good attitude. And here's what's interesting. Thank God for the Word of God. And the writer says, you were able to do that. You were able to stick with it. You were able to persevere because you remembered that you had a better and lasting possession waiting for you. Church, how's that important today? What have we got? Amen. A better and lasting possession waiting for us. Now, please understand that Greek word for better, it means superior in quality and superior in reality. And so the writer says, remember those days, early on, even in the midst of all that persecution, you're probably being sold and taken away, remember how you trusted in God's promises of a future tremendous reward. Now also, church, let's remember this. If God makes a promise, what can we count on? He's going to keep that promise. And I want to tell you, folks, if we are going to endure to the end, in fact, the Bible says those who endure to the end shall be saved. Shall be saved. If we are going to endure to the end, we have to keep our eyes focused on that better promise. The promise of eternal life. And how many know, no devil in hell can take it away from us. It is a promise from our God. But hold on. We live in a world today, in America, of cheap, easy believism. (laughs) Because these Jewish believers... Christians, now, they had suffered persecution early on. So they decided, we're going to remain loyal to Christ. And so they did, so the persecution stopped. (laughs) No. In fact, it probably got worse. It was probably getting worse. And because... Their continued loyalty brought more persecution. The mindset was, should we abandon our Christian profession, our faith, and go back to our former place under Judaism, and therefore escape all of this persecution? That's where they were. Now, I don't know about you, but I can't imagine that. We have got it so good here in America. We really do. But folks, we need these timeless words here for us as well. 
Now, so what the writer of Hebrews does, he sets out, does a great job. And he knows they're being persecuted. He didn't deny that. He doesn't deny the fact it's tough. He knows it's tough. But what he does, he begins to remind them how Christ himself was severely tested. In fact, he says to them, he was tested worse with worse trials than even you're being tested. And he endured those same trials and he came out victorious. He came out a winner. Then he says, now that we have a Savior who is made complete, perfect in suffering, he gives them the assurance that that Savior, Jesus Christ, the same one who endured and came to victorious, he is now able to sustain them, he's able to comfort them, and he's able to strengthen them as they walk with God, even though they're facing extreme persecution. Oh, what a Savior. Now, by the way, the closer a Christian walks with Christ, the more the world will hate you. Yeah. Now, i got to tell you, folks, if if you're like me and you have unsaved loved ones in your family, they think you're nuts. They think uh, you're at least two or three bricks short of a load. And the closer you live for Christ, the more the world will hate you. And there's a connection there. The more you love Christ, the more the world hates you. That's a proportion. And it's during those times in our life, the truth in is true now, Satan is particularly active. And it's then he comes against us and he attacks us in so, so many ways. And I give God the praise that for the most part, uh, Pam and I have been saved now for quite a few years. And... Uh, Shortly after we were saved, I, one sister of mine got saved and one brother was saved. Um, and we were the only three. My, my, and of course, Pam. Uh, but three of my family, immediate family there. And uh, they never give us a whole lot of trouble. But early on, they couldn't understand why on, if they scheduled something on Sunday morning, we couldn't be there. We wouldn't be there. Uh, we you know, had to make other plans. But it wasn't long, and they began to respect that. And whenever they could, uh, they would try to work around that. And I appreciate that. But they still looked at me a little cross-eyed. <laughs> you used a little different, right? Uh, because we were. And, uh, but for the most part, no persecution. And uh, I'll never forget when, uh, when I was called to the ministry, I didn't know how my parents would take that. And it wasn't long I found out from, the, from their neighbors who knew me, and they told me, so, well, we hear now you're pastor now. And so my parents were proud of that at one time, and, and hope they still are. But nonetheless, uh, God's been good to us. But that's not always true. And you know there's places across our world where people who put their faith in Christ, their life's in danger. 
their family has ostracized them, they, they lost their contacts, all of those things in their life. Now, please understand, the immediate relief from those kind of struggles of persecution, when we feel like we're all alone, we need to turn our eyes on Jesus. And we need to consider exactly how well qualified He is to help us. How well qualified He is to help us. I spoke with Brother Marvin this morning. He's having a little trouble with his air conditioner at home. And I went over to see him. I said, Brother Marvin, I said, I know just enough to be dangerous. And, you know, I can do some things for you. So I'm not well qualified to help him. But how many know that Jesus is well qualified to help us whenever we suffer? The fact that he became flesh. He was clothed with humanity. Think about that. And because of that, he is able to be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And the experience through which he passed through when he lived here for 30 some years on this earth has qualified him to have pity on us. I was speaking, I think it was Brother Paul Snodgrass just last week. And, um, you know, he lost his wife just a month or two ago. Brother Charlie lost Edna. We have a pastor friend, Brother Jerry MacArthur in Oklahoma, lost his wife last fall. I told Brother Paul, I said, Paul, I wish I could tell you I know exactly how you feel. But you know what? I can't. Why not? I've been through that. But I know one thing. Jesus knows how he feels. He knows how we feel no matter what we face. He he suffered all of those things. He knows everything about our situation. He fully understands our trials. And you know what he promised? He wouldn't put more than what? Than we could bear. Now, unless I miss my guess, there's been a time in your life, and if not, there'll be a time. Are you going to think to yourself, this is more than I can bear? But if Jesus says he won't give us more than we can bear, what does he mean by that? He won't. doesn't mean it won't hurt. Sure it will. But he said, with every temptation, I will provide a way out. Later on in Hebrews, around chapter 10, I think it is. No, chapter 12, I'm sorry. Chapter 11, the Hall of Faith. But in chapter 12, he says, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. If you can imagine a stadium and the stands are filled with those who have gone on. But what's a spectator do? They watch. Now they can say, they can cheer us on and they're doing that. But they can't help us. 
How many know that Jesus is not just a spectator? He comes alongside. He's not indifferent. He's full of compassion. We mentioned last week when he when he arrived to see Martha and Mary at the grave of Lazarus. What did Jesus do? He wept. He wasn't weeping because Lazarus was dead. He knew that before the day was over, Lazarus was going to come out of that grave. He was broken over their brokenness. He had compassion on their hurt. It's also interesting, later on, I think in chapter 9 of Hebrews, the Bible speaking about Jesus Christ, that he's the same today, yesterday, and what? Forever. He changes nothing. So the writer of Hebrews says he is able. He is able to succor us. And the Greek word has two meanings. Not separate, but included. Both the ability and the willingness. You ever have somebody ask you, can you do something? And your answer could be, yes, I can, but what? But I won't. Don't want to, don't feel like, whatever. But Christ has the ability and the willingness. So he's competent and he's ready to go to bat for us. And there's absolutely no unwillingness in him. Hebrews 7, verse 25. Hebrews 7, verse 25. There's a word there, Alan Abel. That means he has the ability and he's willing to do that. He has the ability and he is willing to do that for us. <laughs> and he's willing to do it to the uttermost. What's the uttermost mean? Uh, whatever it takes, the ability and the readiness. Now think about this. We said he's the God man, fully God, fully human. He is the almighty God, the awesome God, but he's also the tender man. The one, he's the one who is infinitely above us in his original nature. He is infinitely above us in his present glory. And yet he's the one who became flesh and blood. Became flesh and blood and lived in the same world we live in, suffered the pain we suffered, same troubles. But I want to say to you, he suffered them more acutely. God became flesh. So my question is, what need do we have that Christ cannot meet? None. 
He's willing and able. <laughs> He's competent. No wonder one of the epistles said, cast your cares upon him. Why? Because he cares for you. He cares for you. Whatever our need is, whenever it comes, our Savior is all-sufficient, all-powerful, and he enters in with sympathy into our situation. Folks, he cares about you. A couple of things we're going to point out tonight about him. First of all, and these are in no particular order, Jesus knew what it was to be weary. John 4, 6, anybody want to read that? What happened there, Phyllis? Why did he sit down? Yeah, he was weary, it says so. Now, we all we know that he had a, a greater mission there, but yet he was weary. So he sat down. He also knew what it was like to feel exhausted. Mark chapter 4, verse 36 to 38. Okay, thank you, Phyllis. Now, notice in verse 36, it says, When they sent away the multitude. Why is that having anything to do with this passage? What was he doing with that multitude? He was ministering. He was healing. He was teaching. And been a long day, a long couple days. How did it affect him? He was exhausted. They get on the ship. He gets out of my pillow and says, fellas, I'm going down and I'm going to get me some rest. I thought he was God. But he's also a man. And he was exhausted. So he knew what it was like to be weary. knew what it was like to be exhausted. He also knew what it was like to be hungry and thirsty. Luke chapter 4, verse 2. He what? Yeah. Now again, I thought he was God. He is. But he was also what? Man. 
Now, I got to tell you, there's nothing, nothing, there's nothing that smells better than fresh bread baking in the oven, right? Come on. I mean, it comes out of the oven nice and warm. And I like, I like to cut the heel off that fresh bread. I, that's my part. Put a little slab of butter on that thing. Mm-mm-mm. Satan comes along and says, command these stones to be bread. What could Jesus have done? And he didn't eat an oven. He was hungry. Forty days about eating. John 4, verse 6 through 7. Thank you, fellas. Now, again, you read the first six moment ago. He's wearied, sits on the well to rest. Now, we know he's God. He's man. So he was tired. But he also knew there's a woman coming. And, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. When she gets there, he asks her for a drink of water. Now, we know the main reason, but what's, the, what's another reason he asked? You think he was thirsty? Sure he was. Sure he was, but he took it and he used it as a way to present a Savior to her. So when we read verses like John 4, 6, and 7 and Luke 4, 2, we see that Christ was truly human. He was really hungry. He was really thirsty. (laughs) Did you know that Jesus knew what it was like to be homeless. Now think about that. Matthew 8, verse 20. Can you imagine that? We think about sometimes our difficult circumstances... And it's not to say we haven't had them. You've had them. Everybody has them. If you live in this world, you will face tribulation. God, Jesus said that. But remember who he is. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He's the Son of God. So therefore, I'm sure when he became flesh, he was probably born in a castle somewhere. (laughs) Probably slept in the best bed there was as a baby, right? He was cradled in a manger. And we think of the times that we experience grief in our lives. Isaiah reminds us he was a man of sorrows. He really, really was. There are times in our life we'll be misunderstood even by other believers. There were times his own disciples misunderstood him. So it doesn't matter whatever our circumstances is, Christ is qualified to enter fully into them. He knows how we feel. And by the way, he experienced 
the miseries of mankind. And I'm going to tell you, he hasn't forgotten them. He has not forgotten them. There are times in our lives we're attacked by Satan. Was he attacked by Satan? Sure he was. The writer of Hebrews says he was tempted in all points just like us, except he did not sin. Now, angels, from what I understand, may have pity, but they really don't understand how we feel. And the reason Christ understands how we feel, the reason he can have compassion to suffer with us, because he lived in our world. And that moves him to come to our aid. The King James word was the chorus. Now, sometimes, sometimes he warns us before the temptation comes. Sometimes he, he prepares us by forewarning. Genesis 15, verse 13. Now, remember, uh, yeah, okay, it's here. He's writing, he's speaking to Abraham. Look what it says. Somebody read that, please. You see the warning here? He's writing to Abraham. He's up. He's promised him a seed. Now think about this. And I, I didn't do a, a timeline study for sure, but quite a few years ago by. So he warned Abraham long before it happened, here's what your people are going to face. He forewarned them. Acts chapter 9, verse 16. I just make sure we fill you in here. This is when uh, Paul has gone to Damascus. He was Saul at the time and going to c- kill some Christians there, arrest them, whatever. And God speaks to Ananias. I want you to go to speak with Paul or Saul. What's Ananias thinking? Send somebody else. I don't want to go. But God says to Ananias, I am going to use you to show Paul the things he must suffer for my sake. So God forewarned Paul. But he also warns us. John 16, verse 33. Thank you, Phyllis. So in the world, you might have tribulation. No, you will. But Jesus, I forewarned you about that. Take cheer. I have overcome the world. It's interesting. Our walk with God is also a learning experience. We go through different trials and temptations to strengthen us for others that's going to come down the road. 
And what he does, he allows those things to come into our lives before the strong temptation. And he does it by making us ready to face them. He strengthens us. In Luke chapter 4, look at verse 1. It's interesting. Now, I realize he's the God-man. I know that. But before he goes into the wilderness, he was anointed of the Spirit. He needed that anointing to endure that temptation. But here what's also interesting. How many are glad for the Holy Spirit lives in us? Did you know that God has a way? He has a way to melt our hearts with a sense of His goodness. Go to Genesis 39, verse 9. Now, this is Joseph. This is before people were indwelled by the Holy Spirit on a permanent basis. Look what it says. Notice the last phrase. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Now, lest you forget it, Joseph was not superhuman. And Potiphar's wife was doing everything she could to seduce him. But did you notice how God had melted his heart? Had melted his heart? And his answer was what? How in the world can I give into this and sin against God? But it's also interesting. He secures us under temptation. Now, please understand, I'm praying that as you read God's Word, and I would encourage you to read some every day at least, a little bit, Find some application. Find a precept or a promise. And use them as a cable to hold on to. Lord, you said this. Lord, you said that. And use them as your strength that prevents us from fulfilling an evil intention. That will help us Remove the temptation itself, improving the sufficiency of His grace. Second Corinthians chapter one, verse two. Now I realize this is one of a common uh, greeting when Paul wrote a letter, and uh, but he says grace be to you, and peace from God our Father, and of course from the Lord. How many know we need saving grace, but we also need living grace? And God promises grace, even under temptation. But he also comforts us, of course, after temptation. 
Luke 22, verses 61 through 62. What's going on here? What's Peter doing? Yeah. God had given him a spirit of remorse. And I have no doubt the same is true with us. God had moved Peter to confess his sins. So what Jesus... Angels came to him after his battle with Satan. He comes to us after our battle as well. There is no matter how dire your situation might be or how acute your pain might be to where you can't run to Christ for relief and deliverance. And one thing for sure, you can count on your help. Well, we're out of time. But I ended my notes tonight by giving you several ways to prepare for temptation. Folks, be prepared, because guess what? It's coming. It's coming. Let's stop right there tonight. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Any uh, special requests tonight before we pray?